0: Hi everyone, I'm CP Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with John Richard Bell about his novel The Circumstantial Enemy. Most of the time I switch from one period and country to another. It's rare for me to interview two guests within a short time who write about the same subject. But World War II was a huge theater, and The Circumstantial Enemy takes a different approach to the topic from Gwen C. Katz in Among the Red Stars. Not the least of these differences is in his main character, Tony Babich, a Croatian pilot who soon finds himself flying missions against the USSR on behalf of the Germans. May 1941, Zagreb, independent state of Croatia. Once the shriek of the steel-wheel brakes fell silent, Tony Babich squeezed through the partially open doors of the railcar and dashed toward the parks leading to the city center. His frantic strides soon slowed, but not because of breathlessness. The wooded squares, sights, sounds, and smells were messing with a determined mind. The fountains still danced, and the vibrant irises and marigolds, always planted with precision, rippled in the wind. He mobbed his brow and shifted his duffel from one shoulder to the other, all the while absorbing the wonders around him. Apart from Wehrmacht vehicles on the street, Zagreb seemed to know nothing of the 12-day invasion. Why would it? This had been Serbia's war, with Belgrade taking the brunt of Hitler's bombs. As Tony considered the notion, his gaze veered to the clusters of leaves that swirled at his ankles and snagged at the cuffs of his uniform. A rumble in the sky and the approach of muddy clouds warned of a downpour. So be it. Whatever the heavens tossed his way could not dampen the thrill of home. And now, please join me in welcoming John Bell. Hi, John. Thanks so much for agreeing to talk with me today.
1: Carolyn, it's good to be with you today.
0: So before we get to your novel, please tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, you have an interesting story. Having spent most of your career in business, you were a CEO, in fact. So what made you decide to write fiction?
1: Uh, that, <laughs> that is a, a long story. I, I never had a burning desire to be a writer at all. Um, I was a very average student in, in high school. Um, and then uh, about 15 years ago, um, my daughter said to me, if you don't write it, um, his story will be lost forever. She was talking about her grandfather, and her grandfather for many, many years has told us about his trials and tribulations in the Second World War. He was a, uh, a young uh, Yugoslav uh, pilot who eventually found himself conscripted into the, uh, the side of the Germans. And um, we heard all about it and it was extremely interesting. And then um, when she said you should really document this for the family, I said, well, you know, I'm not a writer, but she said, well, it doesn't have to be published. All you have to do is uh, interview him and and, uh, give us this account. So I I went to him and he was 80 at the time, thrilled to do it and sat down uh, for a matter of a couple of months and uh, did these interviews. And then he told the story. And then I actually uh, did publish um, the biography, just enough copies for the family and a few generations to come. Um, and, th- and then I thought I was done with writing. And about three years after that, uh, after the company I was the CEO of, was sold uh, to Kraft and I was consulting. I had plenty of time. Uh, I was in airplanes and lonely hotel rooms. And I thought, oh, the, the, the basic story is so interesting. If I was to fictionalize it, could I turn it into a thrilling novel. And um, that's how I got to it. And uh, 10 years later, uh, The Circumstantial Enemy was published.
0: So was that a big shift for you? You had written some nonfiction, I think. You published a nonfiction book.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's a huge step. Um, I, I got to nonfiction because I found a, a literary agent who was interested in this project. But he was, was not a specialist in fiction, but he offered me enough advice to help me improve the book. And then he finally said, you know, John, I've gone about as far as I can with you on this uh, fiction book. I'm, I'm selling business books and doing really, really well. I said, oh, I could, I could give you a business book. And he said, well, what, what would you do? What would you write it on? I said, well, I'd write it on focus. He said, oh, there's a lots of books on focus. What would make yours different? I said, yes, people talk about focus. And we understand what focus means, but n- very few are prepared to actually make sacrifices to find focus. So I, I wrote this book called Do Less Better, The Power of Strategic Focus in, in a um, Complex World, and he sold it to Paul Grave Macmillan. So at least I had a, a, a book out there, and then I put my energy back into the fiction book. But of course, fiction and nonfiction is completely different, completely different genres and completely different audiences. And it did not uh, give me much of a, um, a support in terms of finding another agent or, or a publisher. I just had to work harder at that. But uh, well, I will say uh, writing fiction was 20 times as hard as nonfiction.
0: So how did you go about it? How, well, how, what did you do in order to learn fiction?
1: Um, I started to write the fiction and I would say maybe... After a couple of thousand words, I realized I was in way over my head. I knew nothing about writing a novel. And so I stopped writing for a year and I, I went to uh, the library almost every day and read books about how to write fiction. So I read books about uh, character, plot. Um, I even read books about romance, um, structure, uh, all of this stuff. And, and a year later... Um, I sat down to write with that in mind, so I learned about the plot arc and had planned out a you know chapter by chapter plot arc, and then i I started writing, and it uh, I absolutely uh loved it. I was com- completely, completely into it. It was on my mind all the time. Um, and un- unfortunately, our, my my manuscript was so, so, so long. I had no idea that, you know, rookie novelists uh, you, you better not write anything for more than 100,000 words or it, it just won't be looked at. This was 240,000 words. And over three years, um, using a number of people to help me edit it, uh, I managed to do less better and got and murder some darlings in there and got it down to um, the right length, which was about 110,000 words, which is what the circumstantial enemy is. Um, yeah, and, and learned a lot along, along the way. Um,
0: what kinds of things? Self-learning. What kinds of things yeah. did you learn? Uh, the, I think the,
1: the most important and, and, and the, the biggest learning now when I think of it is the fact that I got to know those characters so well, like members of my family, the villains as, as well as the heroes, that um, writing what they would or, or wouldn't do actually became easy. I, I was surprised that I could take a female point of view uh, in, a, in romantic scenes and, and some other uh, less desirable scenes and be able to do it because I knew the character so well. And you know, I would have thought that it would be much easier for, for a guy to write in, in the, uh, the, the male point of view, but it wasn't any easier and it wasn't any more difficult. So knowing the characters inside out, and I think because I was with them for so long, this, this book was 10 years from beginning to end, from, uh, from uh, you know, beginning the writing to actually uh, seeing it uh, in the marketplace, and you're, you're you're still writing, you're still editing, you're still uh, revising and, and improving, and and um, murdering murdering some darlings as they say that uh, you thought were pr- pretty nice uh, paragraphs but unnecessary.
0: Yeah, that's always a hard one, but it's it's good practice, I think. Um.
1: It, it certainly um, made the final version extremely tight. I mean, um, people who, who understand literature and, and, uh, and other authors have said that. And I said, well, I, I think I just had so much in it uh, that uh, to get it down by uh, two and a half times, um, it had to be tight and it had to be succinct um, without um, too much puffery. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's, um, it's remarkable that you were able to cut that much out of it um, because it's a very rich novel uh, that's left. Um, if I
1: had it to do again, I, I, I would have made it three novels, but I didn't have the experience. And, you know, I thought this would be a great epic novel. Well, n- nobody wants an epic novel from a, from a rookie, <laughs> especially someone my age. I mean, that's the other thing. You know, do do literary agents, they look at someone at 71 and go, well, how many more books has, has this guy got left anyway? We want to manage careers, not books.
0: <laughs> that's true. I'm thinking, I interviewed Laurie R. King along uh, probably almost five years ago now, she writes a series of mystery novels. Well, she has several series, but her longest one is about um, Mary Russell, who is her imagined wife of Sherlock Holmes. And I, we were talking about how she started working on it. And she said, well, because I was Laurie R. King and not Stephen King, I had to write <laughs> 90,000 words.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so... Um, and the uh, humor is that she's not, she's not quite Stephen King, but she's certainly, like, in that ballpark. So there's always hope. I, I
1: read, one in my research, I read King on writing as well.
0: Ah, yes, which, right.
1: Which actually shocked me because he doesn't do a plot arc. As really? you probably know, he just starts out with a sentence and goes from there.
0: Yes, yeah, some people do. Some people do.
1: I, I'd, I'd love to be able to do it. <laughs>
0: So, so let's uh, talk about the circumstantial enemy itself, you mentioned that it's based on your father in law's life. um, And he obviously did talk to you because you interviewed him uh, at length, which is a really interesting. uh, It's a very valuable asset, because so many vets, especially of World War Two won't talk about their experiences. Um, But how did you turn him into Tony? Presumably Tony is not just your father-in-law, but a character in his own right.
1: Yeah, he's pretty close. <laughs> Tony Babbage is, is very much like him. He was, um, this guy was an adventurer. Uh, he, went in, he, he joined the um, Royal Yugoslavian Air Force at 18 um, because he wanted to discover the world. He wanted to have a good time so it was a complete shock uh when at uh, t- 20 uh, the germans invaded and suddenly he was uh you know uh defending belgrade and c- captured as a prisoner of war and then sent back to croatia for that meeting with the, with the sergeant as as you remember where he was interrogated again and th- then he was in russia this this kid who was really apolitical i mean he he, he he really didn't know what was going on uh, politically in, in Europe. He just wanted to have a good time. And, of course, uh, he, he was in for a, a hell of a shock.
0: And how so, did he uh, feel about that in retrospect?
1: Well, he, he had a tough time with it. I mean, you know, uh, I had uh, Tony Babich in when he was uh, on, the, on the Eastern Front, and they, they had to manage slave workers. Uh, you know, he was stealing food from the, from the cafeteria to feed them, which he would have been shot if he was uh, caught. So he was, he was very, very sensitive and, and caring as, as much as he could be um, to, do, to do what was right uh, without getting himself killed. And then, then he was sent back to Croatia to then actually be at odds with his own people because the partisans were rising up against the Germans. But he was on the side of the Germans. So uh, it was again, um, Croat versus Serb, which was a, um, a conflict that has been going on for a thousand years. Um, they did not want to be ruled by the Serbs. He, he got that because say, he got that from his father and his grandfather and, and the one be- before them. that uh, They were always under the, under the thumb of the Serbs who came from the Ottoman Empire, different religion. And um, of course, Croatia was always more aligned with the Austro-Hungarian Empire same religion and, and same kind of culture. So they wanted their own country. They wanted their own independence. They didn't get it after the First World War, thought they would, but they felt that the Allies uh, double-crossed them. So again, they were under more, more Serb rule. And then when Hitler came in, uh, he, you know, he established the uh, independent uh, state of Croatia, which of course wasn't independent, it was a Nazi puppet state, and the Ustasha, which is um, uh, I means fascist in uh, in Croatian, uh, they were the prevailing government. And uh, before he knew it, um, by 1943, when Italy had surrendered, the Allies were then sending um, uh, arms and clothing and supplies uh, by way of the sea to Croatia, and his job was to scout that uh, that sea. And uh, if they spotted any boats coming, drop the bombs. And, of course, he was he was downed in in the sea. And uh, that basically led to him eventually going to uh, prisoner of war camps in the U.S., which was a great way to spend the rest of the war, in, in retrospect. Even though in one of them the, the Nazis controlled the camp with an iron fist, uh, he had the same rights as did uh, American... Soldiers who um, guarded the camp and, and worked out of the camp because th- they followed the Geneva Convention, which, of course, the, the Axis side did not. So he learned English, he learned to trade, um, and he came back to um, true Croatia. Of course, by that time, the partisans had taken over the country and uh, he was an enemy of the state. So that is all true. And then what I did uh, is, is I fictionalized the... Um, the circumstances in the camps, um, uh, the, his romance with uh, who would become his, his, his future wife, and the, and the problems with the, um, with the partisans that he had in, in post-war Yugoslavia.
0: Ah, okay. So the, the whole first part of the story, uh, through his capture and taking to the camps, is basically your father-in-law's story.
1: Well, yeah. Um, the, the locations and the situations are that. But of course, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, of, of fiction in there because he's building up conflict with various characters along right. the way.
0: Okay, so that's the part of it that you invented. The, I mean, obviously, you invented the dialogue and all the rest of it as well. But you, um,
1: he, he is the only true character in the, in the in the. All the other characters are fictional.
0: Ah, okay, that's useful yep. to know. Yeah. So, um, how did you research this novel? Because I mean, obviously, World War II, you know, there's a history channel, there's an enormous quantity of publications and so on. But the war in Croatia is not that much studied in English, is it?
1: Uh, Yes, there's not a lot about it. Um, But when you, you know, I could read about the Eastern Front. I could read about the the assault on Leningrad, which is where he was uh, in Russia. So there's quite a bit written on that. Um, There's actually quite a bit written on the United States prisoner of war camps, of which there were 400 in the U.S. between 1942 and 1946, and they housed as many as 425,000 Germans. Um, There's a lot on the individual camps. I probably read six nonfiction books on the U.S. camps, which was really, really helpful. And then I had to make sure that uh, his story was true. (laughs) <laughs> and there was a few examples where he'd exaggerated a bit. I mean, they were mainly true, um, but there was there was a, a little bit of exaggeration. But usually on the numbers. Um, in in the book, there's something about a um, a soccer game between the uh, the Italian and the um, a German prisoner of wars in Rockford, Illinois, and the whole town was excited about it. And they had this game and. I mean, in his mind, there was 40,000 fans there. Well, there wasn't. <laughs> there was 4,000. <laughs> but it doesn't much matter. But I had to get it right. Right, yeah. <laughs> and so I, I checked and double-checked. And, and, I mean, he was 95% right, even at 80. Uh, his memory was still pretty good. So that had to be done. And uh, I, just, I just knew where to look on these uh, little incidents. And, and rather than be, be reading encyclopedias about World War II, didn't have to do it.
0: Yeah, that's good. And
1: I, I I looked at it more as a um, a thriller novel than, than I did as a historical fiction. Even though even though there's a lot of uh, uh, his, history in there that had to had to be correct. So, but it, but for me, it was really making the story exciting for the reader and believable, and yet at the same time, the, the message of this this little known part of. Uh, uh, World War II history has, has come out. And this is what uh, I discovered in, in the reviews that people appreciated so much. They said, how can you write anything new about World War II? Well, if you write about America, Britain, and France, and Germany, there's not much new other than uh, little individual stories. So this, this was new to people. Having said that, this was one of the uh, challenges I had in finding a literary agent in America they wanted it to be about an American. And I had one agent, um, quite a well, well-known one, who said, I'm, I'll take it on, but I want you to start this book at the uh, prisoner of war camp in America. I said, you know, as much as I'd love this book, to, to you to represent me and to have this book come out, I'm gonna start, I'll be starting that at the middle of the book, I just can't do it. So he said, thanks, <laughs> but no thanks.
0: So let's get back to the interview that you mentioned in Belgrade. I mean, we, we've just met Tony. He's just come back uh, to Zagreb, and he's had a kind of bad experience um, flying. He really, uh, I get the impression he's almost thinking about giving up flying, and he's gone down to the local government office to get his identity papers checked. And he runs into trouble. So tell us what happens to him.
1: Yeah, um, the reason that's in there is because the, the Royal uh, Yugoslavian Air Force was made up of a number of factions. Um, it was basically run by the Serbs, Serbs, but there was also Bosnians and there was uh, Croatians uh, in there. So what this uh, captain was trying to do was trying to determine his loyalties, whether, whether he was for the Croats or whether he was for the uh the Royalists, um or the communists or or whoever. So I mean the moment he, he discovered that he was basically Tony was apolitical at that time, um, that he, 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 he was a Croat and uh he would be of help to them because he had experience and he was just a young guy, but he didn't have a lot of experience. I mean he'd been in one uh, one or two um air battles in a fighter plane and had had killed somebody so he was absolutely shell-shocked by that and uh, and just came back not wanting any more war but well there, there, there is no neutrality when there's war so he, he had to he signed on with them which was pretty typical I would think um, of someone who was already in the armed forces and came back to Croatia what are you going to do uh, you know Unless, unless you're uh, communist-minded, of which his his family was not. They were they were very very uh, uh, patriotic Croats, wanting their own independence, wanting to run their own country, wanting to be uh, uh, away from the dominance of uh, Serbia.
0: Although you mentioned that the Independent Republic of Croatia was a puppet state, as I think most areas controlled by Germany were at that time, was it? I mean, did it have it's i mean it did, what did it have that appealed to tony? I mean, I do get his, his the impression that he was something of a Croat nationalist, if not really a political person i mean is that the main thing that drew him besides the fact that he didn't have many options really yeah, he
1: didn't have many options he didn't have any options and i and i think in in the in the theme you're referring to. Um the, 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 the captain said, uh, if you agree, I'll ask uh, whoever the, 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 the German superior officer is to approve you. Um, are, are you good with that or something like that? And he said, yeah, yeah, I'm good with it. And then I, I think I had him think, yeah, now, now let me get the hell out of here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> you know, sign off and, and go and put it behind you. Of course, it didn't last long because uh, then, then he was off to Russia.
0: So he has a very close friend named Goran. Is that how you pronounce yep. it? Um, yeah. And he takes a different path. Um, tell us about him.
1: Yeah. So what happened? Uh, and and this is part of the original book that I had to pull to get the uh, to get the word count down. I had to I had to pull the first seven chapters, and 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 started in chapter eight, and I was able to do that with with. Some revision, but, but not a lot. And the, the editor who had looked at the book and said, you know, we've, we've got to cut 40,000 words out of this book if you, if you want to get a, a bona fide publisher. And she said, are you sitting down? I was on the phone to her. I said, yeah, I'm sitting down. She said, what would really happen if we killed the first seven chapters? I said, really? She said, it seems to me this book takes off in chapter eight. So why don't we just start it there and... And let's leave some of the backstory to the imagination of the reader. And at that point in, in, in my writing development, I wasn't very good at that. I like to, to tie things up, I like to cross the T's and dots the I's. She says, You don't have to do that. You, you have to trust the intelligence of your reader. And this is a perfect opportunity for you to, to, to do it. And I think she was right. I mean, you didn't think anything was You've read the book, you didn't think anything was missing. And now like a good place to start.
0: Yeah, it did. <laughs> I think
1: so. um But anyway, the, Goran and Tony had gone to apprenticeship trials to become pilots. They had gone only because it was a, 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 a free paid uh, uh, holiday for them where they would go and they would run some tests and they'd check their eyes and, Let's see how athletic they were and, and various things like that and um the the air force would pay for their their train fare to this uh, little town for three days well tony got in and, and gordon didn't but so gordon went into academia and of course tony went into the uh the royal air force two years later uh germany invades now he's in even deeper Well, his friend who's an academic uh, it moves to the side of the socialists and the communists and becomes more interested in, in uh, supporting that side of the, um, the equation and eventually becomes Tony's enemy uh, from a political standpoint, from a real, uh, probably a, a realistic uh, standpoint, and from a romantic standpoint because he's in love with the same woman. So they're, they're, their conflict starts there. And it it continues right through the book.
0: So yeah, let's talk about Katerina. Um, she is the daughter of uh, a former colleague of um, Tony's. Uh, doing yeah, his, his former his, commander. Yeah. Yes, his former commander exactly. And they meet at the commander's funeral or shortly thereafter. Um, tell us about about them. These are are characters that you made up, uh, as I understand.
1: Right. It. So. Um, he, he, uh, his, his name was Kurilenko. He was a major. And he gave Tony a very tough time in those pilot trials and eventually uh, came to respect Tony and Tony respecting him. So when the war ended, uh, when they surrendered to the Germans after the 12-day invasion, they were on their way back to Croatia. And uh, the, the, the Germans attacked them and Kurilenko was killed and be, just before he died he gave tony something to give to his wife and daughter and the, and so tony had contacted them and met them in in, in uh, zagreb and of course the, the daughter was uh, didn't want anything to do with him because she hated the military because her father was always in the military and he was always under the thumb of the uh, the serb leader so she immediately didn't like Tony, but there was something there that developed, and um, and Goran, of course, was very attracted to her. So we've got a little bit of a love triangle happening.
0: And is, is she equally attracted to Goran?
1: No, <laughs> no. But he helps her out of a bad situation, and she feels indebted to him. Pretty much, pretty much throughout the book. But no, no, her attraction. Uh, was to Tony, but it it took a while to develop.
0: I see. All right. So without giving too much away, <laughs> right? <laughs> we'll stop there. Um, so talk a little bit about the forces of Tito. I mean, I I actually can't tell anymore how much Americans know about Tito, since I'm a Russian hist- uh, historian. I of course know something about him, but. He, this is where he's just getting started and Gorin is supporting him. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that element of the story and then we'll move to the United States.
1: Okay, sure. So um, Gorin, Gorin um, looked at which way the, the bus was going. And uh, when, it, when it looked like uh, the communists were going to take over the country, uh, he was advised to be a part of them sooner than later. So he did and it worked out quite well for him. Um, he became uh, uh, an individual in charge of uh, passports and visas and Tito um, became the, um, I'm not sure whether he was the president, they called him president at that time or not. But anyway, he, they, they ruled the country. They, they uh, sought revenge on anyone who uh, supported the, uh, the Nazis of which the Ustasha, uh, were the, the secret police who did. Tony was never part of that group. He wasn't, so he wasn't quite as bad as, as them. Um, he did, could come back to Croatia and um, not necessarily be incarcerated, although he was for other reasons. Um, and then uh, I think they, there was a bloody revenge for probably a year after they, they took over. Um, where they, they, they chased uh, all of those who were on the other side, and then eventually Tito said, "Come on, we have to we have to be more worldly." So they they thought that it was still a police state in, in some ways, um, but it wasn't nearly uh, as um, as 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 difficult and as ruthless uh, as as the payback uh, of 1946 and part of 1947. So uh, when Tony did come back to Croatia, uh, he was considered an enemy of the state, and a a bright future was not there for him. Let's let's put it that way. I, he he, I don't think he was ever under under the, the risk of execution, but incarceration. Uh, that's that certainly uh, did happen for a period of time.
0: What made the cross support? Tito, because that put them back into yoke with Serbia, which they apparently didn't want. No, they, they
1: didn't. They actually didn't support Tito, um, even though Tito was a Croat. And, and you can talk to, to Croats and Serbs even now, and they'll often argue about whether he was a Croat or not, but, but he was. But uh, he was a communist, and, um, and they had the support of Stalin, which uh, the Croats didn't want. Um, but I mean, after the, after that situation, I didn't really know very much about the country other than it wasn't right for uh, my father-in-law or for Tony Babbage and, um, he had to get out, which he did. And that part of the the story is a little bit different than what actually happened. He never did go to the U S he actually went to Africa. Um, but I thought the U S would be a, a better way to to take, take the, um, the book and, um, and leave the opportunity for some pretty interesting sequels in, in USA.
0: Great. So talk to us about the prison camps. You, you, um, you gave us a sort of broad outline and you mentioned how Tony got into the camps, but what was his life like there?
1: Uh, it was very different. In um, the, the first camp, was in Rockford, Illinois, and at that point in time, 1943, the American attitude was: what goes on behind the barbed wire is their business, not ours. So they, whatever goes on back there, fine, as long as there is, there isn't escapes and things like that. So the um the american uh, commanders uh they basically had set up uh people within the camp who ruled the camp uh as as though it was a, a political party and at that point in time when you had nazi elements and the camp he was in did and a number of them did uh they were still trying to convert people to the ideals of of hitler and nazism uh so there was um things called, you know, the, the the Holy Ghost, which was a, a midnight uh trial of of, of prisoners for w- whatever reason. And in the in the camp he was in, um, his barrack, which was made up of a number of non Germans who were conscripted onto the the uh the German side, Poles, um Croats, um Hungarians. And so he they staged a hunger strike. And when does the hunger strike? The, the, uh, the American uh, system is that somebody from the War Department must come. It can't be solved by the camp commander. And that's what the Geneva Convention uh, states. So somebody came from the War Department and said, you know, what's going on with you guys? And he said, well, we're, we're living under Nazi terrorism here. Well, we're, no, we're not Germans. We don't want to be with them. So they moved them, moved them down to a, a, a camp that didn't have Nazi elements in it, in them in uh, Louisiana. But at, but shortly thereafter, you may know the name Leon Jaworski. Yes. From from uh, uh, Watergate, Leon Jaworski was in the War Department, and he's the guy that said we have to change our point of view here. We are going to when this war is over, we'll be putting four, over 400,000 Germans back on European soil. We have got to teach them something about democracy. We have to get these Nazi elements out. So they cleaned it up and they, they gathered most of the Nazis and put them in camps just for Nazis and helped others understand and, and appreciate democracy, which was fantastic for Tony Babich and my father-in-law, because this is where they, they, they learned to trade, they learned how to read, they learned English, a lot of super benefits and they were fed extremely well and treated really, really well. So in, in, in some ways, um, well, in, in a lot of ways, this was the, the way to spend the rest of the war in a POW camp in America, not in one in, in Europe.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I was really surprised at the attitude of the authorities early in, in that first prison camp. Uh, I hadn't expected that they would be so hands-off.
1: Yeah, I think they came on them so quickly the, the, um, the Brits had about 60,000 Germans in, in England in these camps. So Churchill went to Roosevelt and said, look, you've got to help us out here, as well as uh, Canada. And so they, you know, they, they gave them kind of a format for how to do it. None of those camps would take more than 4,000 uh, prisoners. So they were a certain size, controlled. Usually they were away from the ports so that you know, they couldn't escape. And uh, it, it was all so new. And then who do, you, who do you hire to manage these people? So they went and they, they got a bunch of retired Army people <laughs> to, to, to do this, which was a completely new job. I mean, it was a little bit easier in places like Camp Grant, where you already had a big American base in, in, in Illinois. Uh, but uh, like a, a little town in Louisiana, um, the one my father-in-law was in was called Ruston, Ruston, Louisiana. Um, you know, com- completely a, a new deal. So they cleaned it up pretty quickly. I think it was maybe about a year, a year of this trouble, uh, and then, uh, yeah, then the, then then they um, t- t- tried to uh, take the Nazi elements out of those camps. Very interesting, very interesting part of American history, and so few people know about it.
0: Well, I think at the time it was actually forbidden to be spoken about. Um, and the only reason I know about them is because I interviewed another author who had written a historical fiction novel set in a German, a US POW camp up in Wisconsin. Um, mm-hmm. And she mentioned that she had actually found newspaper reports and things like that that said that it was illegal to talk about the prisoner of war camps. Why that would be, I'm not sure, but. Mm
1: -hmm. um, The interesting thing is there was very few escapes. I I think uh, I'm I'm going by memory uh, and i read a lot of books about it. Under 10. So, I mean, that one in, in uh, Louisiana, the the nearest town was Shreveport, which was about 250 miles away. How do they get there? (laughs) They're in overalls with PW on the back,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, no transportation. So they, they didn't make it easy for them. And, and I think, it, to, to be honest, a lot of them, why would they try to escape?
0: Right. <laughs>
1: Unless you were such an ardent Nazi that you wanted to tra- cause trouble with, uh, with the enemy. But guys like Tony Babbage and, and the, the non-Germans, no, waiting out the war, right. making, making the best of it. And then Uncle Sam gave them some money to go back. They got so much per month because they, you know, they worked in uh, nearby factories and, and cotton fields. And so they went back with, uh, with a fair, fair amount of money for the times, especially if you were uh, uh, in, in Croatia.
0: Did your father not want to go back?
1: Yeah, he wanted to go back. He wanted to go back, but he didn't want to go back to uh, uh, a country ruled by uh, the communists. Mm. but he pretty much had to.
0: Yeah, no, I know he didn't have a choice, but choosing and wanting are two different things.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, the the, the Russians, the, the the Russians who had deserted and gone over to the Germans who were then captured and put in U.S. camps, they begged not to go back. They said they would work for nothing because they knew uh, they would be assassinated when they got back to Russia. And uh, they did everything they could. They They... Uh, but they they had to go back. That was the deal that Stalin made with uh, Roosevelt. These these Russians would be repatriated. And I guess at the time, um, it was something that uh, Roosevelt had to go along with for the for the better of the rest of them.
0: So one of the, the big events in the camp was the soccer game that you mentioned, the one that had 4,000 spectators, which is actually still a lot for Rockport, Illinois, <laughs> in the, in the middle sure of a war. Is. <laughs> Um, and somehow Tony again finds himself on the wrong side. Um, tell us how that happens.
1: Well, um, the, the, the ardent Nazis who controlled the camp um, were, were, were so committed to Hitler that the thought of losing a soccer game to the lowly Italians was incomprehensible. They had to have a superior team. But the Italians had some semi pro players on the team. So when Tony Babich arrived, um, the, the 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 commandant, uh, Major Maurer, he interrogated everyone uh, for t- two main reasons. One, to try to get them on the side of Hitler again. And secondarily, to find out if they knew how to play soccer. And Tony Babich was a great soccer player. So he wanted him to play for Germany. He did not want to play for Germany. But there was, again, um, a, a deal he made. Because uh, you know, Maurer's uh, gang of thugs... We're uh, giving his uh, barracks a a pretty bad time and interrogating people, taking them out at night, all kinds of terrible things. And so Tony said to him, look, um, I'll play, I'll play for you, but you know, we're off limits. You you leave my barrack alone. And there might've been some other considerations, which I won't reveal, but they're in the book. Um, So that's the deal he cut. And then he also um, decided that uh, he was a bit of a mercenary. So, you know, if he was to score some goals, what would happen? Bottom line is uh, he did, and they, they did win, but the, uh, the American press, uh, in, the Rockford press in the area, in, interviewed the, the team, and they found out that it was a Croat, not a German, who scored the winning goal, which was uh, this was just a horrific uh, revelation for the Nazis who wanted to take all the credit. So that uh, that camp commander became a much bigger adversary of, Tony Babbage and uh, so the conflict accelerated within that camp.
0: So, how did you come up with your title, "The Circumstantial Enemies"? Oh, the oh, yeah, perfect title. <laughs> I had
1: a number book. of of titles, um, but it, to me, it, it, he was he was there through through circumstances, the wrong wrong place at the wrong time. Happened to be in the Air Force, not because he wanted the the career of a, a military man. Uh, because he wanted to explore from the heavens and see the world, and and suddenly, uh, for for some reason, there was this war, and and now he was on the side of the bad guys. And when you're on the side of the bad guys, you're on the side, uh, you're offside on, with a lot of people, which included his own countrymen, the the um, the, the partisans, uh, as well as the the royalists. This was the the military. Uh, sorry, the um, uh, the kingdom of the, the um, monarchy that, that ruled um, Yugoslavia. And then, of course, the Americans and the Brits and a lot of, a lot of people. And then when he came back, his, his own people again. So he was in this, in this war by circumstance. And so he was the enemy of a lot of people circumstantially. So I thought it's a long word, but it probably describes, describes the situation as best I can.
0: It certainly does. So what would you like readers to take away from The Circumstantial Enemy?
1: Oh, the takeaway. Okay, so, um, <laughs> um, but I, I figured you were going to ask me that question. And if you don't mind, can, can I read what a reviewer said? Please do. Okay, so uh, this, this reviewer said, this was a, a deeply human story. The characters did not always see eye to eye, but the reader can fully understand why each one acts in the manner of their choosing. The reader may not even agree with these choices, but the book never makes you feel like you have to. Regardless of right or wrong or what is moral, the narrative remains neutral and allows a story to be told. It's, a, it's sad and tragic, but at times uplifting and inspiring. This is a book for some people, for people who have an interest in history, especially World War II history, but also for those to understand that the world is never a black and white place when it comes to morality and the individual. So I thought that the reviewer kind of summarized it pretty well. I, I wish I'd have thought that way when I wrote the book. But I think uh, that, that, that's the, uh, the upshoot of it.
0: Congratulations. That's an amazing review.
1: Yeah, yeah it, was, it was quite a detailed one. That's just the part at the end. So I, I thought that, that might ex- answer that question for you.
0: Sure. So, what about you? Are you working on another novel, or is this it for you in fiction?
1: Well, this is a, this is an interesting uh, dilemma right now. I am going to to write something else, but here's here's my here's my issue. Um, I have seven chapters already written, but that's at the beginning. So the question is whether I do a prequel and maybe do something on more on the other characters within those seven chapters, or just cut to the chase and go to America, which is where he eventually ended up and, uh, and go from there.
0: Thanks so much for sharing your time with us today.
1: Thanks for having me. All the best.
0: And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm CP Leslie. And today I've been talking with John Richard Bell about his debut novel, The Circumstantial Enemy. You can find out more about him at www.ceoafterlife.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.